Hello, everybody. Mackenzie here from Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. Yes, I know season five has been taking a bit longer to get put together and get out. But I promise you that toward the beginning of 2023, we will have the season five premiere. And boy, do we have a great season lined up for you. And we definitely have some big announcements to make. In the meantime, though, between now and the new year, we are going to be doing something special. As you may know, I am part of another theater company called Cup of Hemlock Theater, where I am the co-artistic producer. And on that show, we do reviews of live theater that we see, as well as reviews of stage pro shots, as well as artist interviews and roundtable discussions. So between now and then, I'm going to be releasing our episodes we've done on musical pro shots we've covered, including the pro shot of Oklahoma starring Hugh Jackman. We have a pro shot of Showboat that we've done. We've done one of David Hasselhoff's Jekyll and Hyde. So we have a few great episodes that I love to introduce you to this other venue that I do. So if you have interests beyond musicals and want to know more about traditional plays and hear from other local artists, This is a great podcast you can listen to. So check out these episodes and I hope you'll join us on the Cup of Hemlock feed as well because you'll find me there as well. Thanks, everybody. Stay tuned for season five. I promise it's coming early 2023. Thanks so much. See you soon and enjoy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cup round tables. It has been some time since you have seen an episode like this on your platforms, but we are so excited and invigorated to be bringing it back. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the associate producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre, and I am joined by an exquisite team. I'm super excited to be joined by these humans today to discuss the late and incredibly great Stephen Sondheim. Today's roundtable is all about Sondheim, who was an astonishing American composer and lyricist, honestly been told to be one of the most important figures in 20th century musical theater. He's been credited as having invented the new American musical. So we are going to unpack everything Sondheim today. And before we dive into Sondheim specifics, Let's, we will go around the table and do an introduction of self. We will share what is in our cup and a favorite Songheim song. So yeah, rack your brains. I know it's difficult, but so you've just met me. I guess I will just share on my end. I am drinking from the cup cup and I have some throat coat tea happening right now as we record because seasonal allergies are affecting the vocal cords and I need those. So that is what I'm sipping on. I have some water to take us through the recording as well. But, and I guess I'll share a favorite song. Sure. I would say Last Midnight, I think is my favorite Sondheim song. Welcoming back an incredible human. And you have seen her on another panel where we discussed our musical theater. Now we're diving even more in. It is Emma. Hello, Emma. How are you? Good. Hi. Hello. Hi. So <laughs> I'm Emma. I am a PhD student in theater at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City. 
And I research musical theater as well as fan studies and theater fandom. And I mean, I love Sondheim, so I'm very excited to be here. Who doesn't? But that's me. And I am drinking, I didn't have a Sondheim mug, but I am drinking from my Falsettos mug. And I'm drinking coffee, but it's half deemed. I, yeah. And I have water as well. And okay, I'm going to be annoying and say two songs because I couldn't narrow it down to one. But I'm, I mean, it's on time, right? But I'm going to go with Our Time from Merrily We Roll Along and Miller's Son from Hello okay. My Music. Lovely. Wonderful choices. And again, great to have you back. Pivoting to Nick. Welcome to the cup. This is Nick's first cup episode as well. We're so grateful to have you. What are you sipping on? And what is your fave Sondheim tune? And tell us about you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. What's in my cup? Currently in my cup, <laughs> there's vodka. Yes. In my cup. Sondheim would approve. He would. He you know, I figured <laughs> I would, you know, take yeah. a drink for him. My favorite Sondheim song has to be A Moment in the Woods. Nice. It's like my Bible. The show overall is my Bible. So that song, it guides me. Nice. Beautiful choice. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Patrick, we'll pivot to you next. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm drinking tea in my mug, um, which felt into the woodsy, which is why I grabbed it because there's bubbles on it. Um, Yeah, I'm a PhD candidate in social and public fun and co-founder of that. And my favorite Sondheim song is Chromium Number 7 from Sunday in the Perfect George. No, I'm kidding. I just want to see how people reacted to that. Imagine <laughs> if that was my favorite song. It's a choice. Song. It's a choice. Uh, yeah. No, my favorite song, song is, I in general don't like superlatives, but when you asked this question, I knew immediately what the answer would be is being alive for company. Mm. What a what a power ballad. Amazing. Thank you, Patrick. And one of our artistic producers here, Cup of Hemlock, and a huge Sondheim fan, Mackenzie Horner. Yeah. He's got the books, he's got the Bibles and textbooks himself. How are you yeah. doing, Mac? What are you sipping on? And give us a Sondheim tune that jingles the most uh, for you. Well, I'm doing great, Jill. I mean, we're talking about arguably my favorite composer, lyricist of all time. Heartbroken that we're doing this to commemorate one year since his passing. I mean, hard to believe we're at that point where we are one year. And I mean, I can still remember being in the office and seeing it pop up on Twitter that Stephen Sondheim, the age of 91, had passed away. Mm-hmm. Unexpectedly, too. I mean, unexpectedly is a choice word, considering he was 91. But still, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, he was in good health. He had been going, he'd been in the rehearsals for the company revival on Broadway. He'd been working on the West Side Story remake. So he was still very active. He was even talking about a new musical he was working on that was supposed to actually begin workshopping, like, mm-hmm. uh, like in a few months. So he was very active in his 90s and so then to all of a sudden lose him it was just such mm-hmm. a profound thing so i'll be i'm very excited to get a wealth of minds together to explore this man's gift of a canon so very Absolutely. excited commemorating uh, here him here for sure and yes this episode will be going out around around the exact date of a year out from his passing yes. so to commemorate yeah. his really drink wise i'm drinking a cup of mm-hmm. girl gray tea in my mac mug there so there's that. And then I also have some or Gatorade as well to keep the electrolytes up during this cold season. Art. And then favorite Sondheim song. I mean, it changes on the hour every hour. 
depending on what mood Mac is in, what song, what, what show he's in, currently in the throes of. But I think one of my always go-to Sondheim songs is A Little Priest. That is such a bop to cook in the kitchen with, like, <laughs> it is like a deliciously villainous song. And it's just Sondheim having his fun with lyrics and, and wordplay, which is something we will definitely get into with him because he was a master of that. But this definitely was a song that he said he wrote like almost 10 pages of different professions that he could potentially rhyme with when he was working on that song. And just getting it and just, and you could tell you just had a blast coming up with some of them like Shepherd's Pipe Peppered with actual Shepherd on top. For an actor, it's compactor. Yes, and always arrives overdone. Like, like yeah. just so many great little zingers in there that he threw at people. That was just a lot of fun. So, I mean, it's just a classic Sondheim lyrical bop. But it's also one of his most hummable tunes, which we'll get mm -hmm. into. That wasn't always Sondheim's yes. things. The fact that he wrote a very hummable act one finale that kind of gets you really judged up to see the murder of mayhem that's going to follow Sweeney and Lovett into act two. So it's a lot yeah. of fun. So definitely one of my go-tos of Sondheim. So there we go. Yeah. Love that. And no humans were harmed in Mackenzie's kitchen as he's singing that too. <laughs> as far as you know, um, as far yeah, as you know. Great. Lovely. Again, it, it's so astonishing to have such brilliant minds in this room to, to a theater icon, musical theater guru, all the things. God. God. Yeah. <laughs> he's a god. Yeah, uh, he really did have a way of writing for humanity and writing humanity. And so mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get that as we unpack our questions. So let's dive right in. So question number one, how would you describe your own personal relationship to the works of Stephen Sondheim? So a lot to unpack there. And Nick, I'll have you sort of lead us on this one. If that's all right with you. I don't know why, I just kind of felt that that was coming my way, so that's good. <laughs> um, I don't even know who said it. When I said that it was my Bible, I felt a little weird because I know that I'm not the first person, <laughs> the first actor out there to um, talk about his works as their Bible. Shoshana Bean, who's one of my favorite vocalists and actresses out there, She's another big Sondheim uh, fanatic and a big Woods fanatic, as I am, which is the show, really, that got me into Sondheim and who he is and what he does. So I guess, to me, the answer really is into the Woods and how it is, to me, my guide in the hardest moments in life. Mm -hmm. I like that, like, this show in itself is such a beautiful show about like it's just about flawed people broken people wanting to make their dreams a reality mm -hmm. and pursue something that yes will cost a lot and, and it gets us thinking on 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 how much we want our dreams to come true and how far we're willing to go to make them come true and it's such a beautiful show with such beautiful characters and he's so incredible of writing such different people such broken and flawed which is what i love the most about theater is flawed people and he was very good at, at writing them yeah. so to me as an actor who loves sitting in my brokenness and sitting in my uncomfortability i'm as incredible for that he's always been a great um, guide into being able to allow myself to to sit in my own shit. I guess is how I can say it. 
you know, yep. and he teaches me how and allows that, I don't know, that rawness to, to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my relationship to his work is very much surrounding that incredible ability to make raw, imperfect people so desirable and so enticing and so not so flawed at the end, I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Beautifully put. And the Sondheim that I've witnessed or heard or been a part of, I completely agree with that. He really does kind of put a mirror up to humanity, like how humans are just gritty, messy people trying to live in this thing called the world, right? So totally. Emma, I'll have your answer next. That's all right. That was such a good answer. I don't know how to follow that. I was just going to be like, I love Sondheim. No, but I mean, I became a really big Sondheim fan in high school. And I, like, in high school, I was watching, like, the PBS great performances of Sunday the Pop with George, like, while everyone else was watching, like, Gossip Girl. Um, I used to watch, I used to watch Sunday and Into the Woods just endlessly. Yeah, loved those. And yeah, so I just feel like Sondheim has always been like, it's always been there. And I don't have, I don't have some beautiful moving answer like that. That was so good. Oh. But I did also play Little Red in college. So did oh. I. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. <laughs> Do you know things now? Sorry, that was a pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I have to say, when I got cast, I was a little upset because I really wanted to play Cinderella. It was like a dream role. Like, you know, it was fun. It was, I think it was a good choice in the end, but I was pretty heartbroken. Nice. Another little red. We love it. No, I could just like see the little Emma just like binge watching Sunday in the oh, Park yeah. and, and everyone being, oh, Gossip Girl this. You're like, no, 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 no. I need my Yeah, I was theater. like, I was busy. Soak it in. Yeah. Also, and my Great. mother hated them so much. My mother was like, why are you playing this? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it isn't like for everyone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Patrick, what is your own personal relationship with the works of Stephen Sondheim? Yeah, my first encounter with Sondheim, I hated it. <laughs> I was in middle school, and my sister was in the high school production of Into the Woods, where she played the tree, which is a real part of the woods. Um, and I remember at the end of Act One being like, the show's done, right? Like, that was great. Everything's happy. And then <laughs> watching Act Two, and everything just falls apart and going like, this is terrible. What is this? is the worst thing I've ever seen. And I was like, yeah, I hated that show. But I was like, very and then in high school, when I started getting into theater, I was in a production, a community theater production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And I had so much fun in that show. And I was like, at this point, I was in grade 10. So I was a little more mature. I was able to, you know, deal with shows that weren't always that happy. Although Forum is very happy. And I was like, okay, maybe I can like look into Sondheim again. And I found the actor-musician production of Company, which just like blew me away. And it's funny. I mean, at the time, I felt so like seen by that show. And that was definitely just teenage angst. Because, of course, like a 14-year-old does not understand what is actually being expressed in Company. But I think that's actually, for me, one of the things that I love about Sondheim's work so much is actually that, you know, through especially music, like he's actually able to communicate kind of emotional states and arcs that aren't things that you necessarily have to like relate to or personally understand to actually feel synced into by his work. 
um, which I think is like one of the greatest things art can do in general. And one of the really special things musical theater has the possibility to do, take advantage of music where you can communicate things, not just through the spoken word. And he was a master at that. He made me feel when I was 14, like I understood what it meant to be a 30 year old bachelor desperate to connect. So like, that's cool. Yeah. I love, I love the way you bring that up. I think there's also like an agelessness, timelessness to like the themes that he susses out in his works too, which yeah, Mm -hmm. totally aids and guides into that accessibility facet that you're bringing up there for sure. Love that. Thank you. Mackenzie, what is your personal relationship to the work? Oh my goodness. I mean, I have yet to actually do a Sondheim show. Yeah. That is a bucket list item. That is there. I got all my directorial concepts of different productions for different shows. You know, one of those things that one of these days Mac will get to. I have performed Sondheim songs, though, growing up as a musical theater kid. That was a wonderful thing to do. You know, No no More, Giants in the Sky, Being Alive, Sunday. I went through all the canon there. So singing them was a lot of fun. But we have covered some of his musicals on the Before the Downbeat, my other podcast. We did. We've done Sweeney, Merrily, Company. I'm trying to think of all. Uh, we've done Woods. So, we, so, 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 so we're slowly but surely working our way through. We usually do like one a season just to kind of spread the song time love over a couple seasons. You know, can't have mm-hmm. us doing just a whole season of song time and then not doing them ever again. So, you know, but I mean, I when I was looking at this question, I went back to what I wrote on the day he died and I put up my obligatory, you know, Sondheim artist post and just paraphrasing something here. And I think it still holds true, which is it's always an incredible joy to dive into his work and explore all the new and hidden gems that he left artists to discover. He never just spelt it out for you. He yeah. always leaves it in the page and it's your job as an artist when you come to his work to do your homework and to find something in there. And it may not be the same thing for every artist. Jill's interpretation of Little Red is probably very different from Emma's interpretation Absolutely. of Little Red. And there are probably gems in the lyrics that Jill found that Emma may have found, but maybe said, ah, that, that, that doesn't quite fit with my interpretation. So I'll look at this gem instead, you know? So yeah. I mean, that's the joy right there is Sondheim left so much on the page that for an artist to explore and investigate. And he never, ever wrote simple characters, even in his most kind of basic of shows that he said, which was like Forum, which he wasn't always the biggest fan of. You can go into that piece and explore those comedic characters and really kind of get into some of the internal drama and uncomfortableness that they're all in. I mean, whether it's, I think it's Andromeda is the wife. In that one, who's having to deal with her husband being a lecherous old man. And it doesn't a really comedic song, but there's real pain when she talks about that dirty old man of mine. And he's cavorting here somewhere, like flouncing our marriage for all despair, right? Like uh, she is really struggling with something in that. Yeah. Same thing with like, you know, Hysterium and his whole calming song where he's like, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm perfectly calm, right? Like he's getting into, like he's self soothing because he is in a very agitated, spot and as an artist you can play in that sandbox and really build up to that song and really have fun with it there right like, like it's never just and i mean even like us who whose whole arc is he doesn't want to be a slave and he has a whole song about not wanting to be a slave but then when it gets to like him getting a woman and they bring up the line of 
free? No, but like she'll respect me and I'll respect her. It's like one of those things. Like there's a lot of gray in those characters that even like this character who is a slave understands what it is to be a slave. Can't even bring himself to free a woman. Like he's still in the system, you know? Like there's stuff in even like his most basic of shows for you to play with. Like even something like West Side Story. Like you could look at the Sharks and the Jets as just teenage hoodlums, you know? Like. Like, but there's a lot going on in those songs. G Officer Krepke's not just a boppy too. That Sondheim wrote. Those lyrics he gave those jets is really fascinating if you actually dive into it and take out the Bernstein melody and just look at what Sondheim is talking about, you know? So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the joy of Sondheim. And that's something that, yes. like, for me personally, going into it, it's always the joy. I know whenever I pick up one of my Tandy Dandy Bibles of his mm-hmm. work and explore a song for the podcast or for singing, I know I'm going to be there a while with my pencil, just, you know, jotting things out, marking things out. Because, you know, there are things you realize. You go, oh, I didn't realize he was writing so much. Like, even when he does opening doors, you know, and all the act- and all the actors are- or performers are talking on top of each other. Each one of them is telling their own story. Even though yeah. the audience may just hear a cacophony of sounds that they may not fully be able to comprehend everything that's being talked about. Right. Sondheim did. Sondheim cared. He, you can track Mary's whole arc of her film publishing career to where she ends up doing pop-up magazines and writing for mm-hmm. Playboy. You know, like, it's one of these things, like, she has a whole character arc in that one song that sometimes gets completely overlooked because she's, yeah. like, three lines down in the, in the music. So you may never hear what she's saying, but Sondheim cared enough yes. to write that character in. And the sandbox is mighty. The sandbox yes. is deep and mighty. So yes. that is my persuasion of Sondheim is he is a giver of yes, sand he is. and complications. Amazing. Love it. There's Yes. I can tell there is a large relationship you have with this composer, <laughs> Mac. You're passionate in every, in every statement you're making. I love it. So let's delve even further. I know through some of these conversations, a couple of the shows have already been mentioned, but this question in particular... What is your favorite Sondheim show? And are there any particular shows of his that have grown on you as you've explored the canon? So Patrick, why don't you blast us off with this one? Yeah, this is also, it's funny. I started by saying I, in my introduction that I really just like superlative questions, but I feel like with these, these Sondheim questions, I actually do have, have answers like all, so <laughs> ready, which yeah, my for my favorite show, I will have to say too, but it started with the company and company was the first show and remains, I think like just... What an incredible exploration of like the loneliness of what it is, and yeah, it, but also like how built into that is still the like structure of desire to be with people and like the pain of that, but also the hope of that. I think it's such an interesting and incredible piece. And then Sunday in the Park with George is the one probably that as I got increasingly into time, I developed more and more of a fondness of, and now it's kind of co-equal. To Sunday, I think, especially as I've been a person who started to explore like my own creative practice and stuff, you know, like, like I always return to it to like affirm me. What an interesting, like, kind of love letter to the arts and artists that piece is like everything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new, give us more to see. Like, those lyrics just make my like the hairs on my arms stand up, like saying them. And yeah, I think I'll just like stop there because I could talk. 
forever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Let's see what other people say. And then, yeah. Of course. No, yeah, beautiful. Mac, you want to go next? Oh, I want to piggyback off Patrick because sure. my favorite Sondheim show was also Company. That was my pick as well because it's just, you know, like Patrick said as so well, it, it is a true exploration into humanity and our connectedness to one another. And the fact that Sondheim wrote this when he was single and wasn't in an open relationship, he wasn't really out of the closet, as it were, like, what, he didn't really get into relationships until he was in, like, in, 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 into the 1990s when he kind of really found a partner and started really kind of opening himself up that way. So the fact that he had, he had to go to all his married friends like Mary Rogers, or no, sorry, Mary Hammerstein, Mary Hammerstein, Oscar Hammerstein's wife. But he had to go to her and go, well, what's married life like? And she wrote all the little things that it is, and that's how he came up with the song, The Little Things, right? So the fact that this man who isn't in a relationship was then able to so greatly capture with George Firth's stuff, I mean, we should acknowledge George Firth was a major partner of his in this piece. The scene, the in-between scene of between the songs are all George Firth's writings. But even then, like, just the way Sondheim was able to collaborate with him and then give so much and speak to so many hearts in this mm-hmm. piece. Because we've all felt like a Bobby at some point in our lives when we're struggling to find the person who will make us be alive. And then also coming to accept that in order to be alive, it requires opening the door to yourself. I mean, there's the great scene at the end of it where Joanne kind of proposes a affair with Bobby when her husband's gone. And Bobby says, well, who will I look after? And then that's the click, right? Like, that's the moment where you realize, oh, in order to be able to be with someone, you have to be open enough. And that's the journey everybody has to take in order to find their partner is you have to be willing to open your heart and have it potentially be stomped on a number of times before you find that one person who clicks and makes you be alive, you know? And I mean, that's the beauty of that piece. I mean, I saw it in London when they did it with a a swapped cast where we had Bobby played by Rosalie Craig. And then a lot of the a lot of the male songs were given to the female partners and vice versa. There was a gay couple playing Jamie and uh, oh, what's his name? Paul. Hmm? Paul, right? Paul, thank you. Yes, Jamie, Jamie Paul? and Paul. Yeah. Used to be Amy and Paul, then it came Jamie and Paul. But it was great. I mean, hmm. once again, like just the fact that this one piece is so versatile where you can go from having it play with a live orchestra, cast orchestra with Esperanza, and then you go and look at the Neil Patrick Harris concert version, where it was all done with love seats, except for Bobby, who's in an armchair till the very end. But also then... don't look at that version. <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's got its moments, you know? Like, Stephen Colbert actually does pretty good on your story, Grateful. But like that company and- rides or rides on its Bobby and Neil Patrick Harris is not up to the task. <laughs> oh, agree. Agree. Neil Patrick Harris is not my favorite Bobby by far. But once again, but that's the joy of this piece is that so many different people can come in and play Bobby and do so much like with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that shows such a blank canvas more than any Another. other Sondheim show where every time you come into it, like our views on relationships change. Our views on couples yeah. change. Like I just the progressiveness of that show where you have the one couple who I forget their names, but they're the ones that in act one, they announce that they're divorced, but then Mm -hmm. in act two, you find out they're still together. And it's like, well, we don't want to be married, but we still want to be together. 
And it's like, how progressive is that? And then the fact the scene ends with the guy um, hitting on Bobby and kind of saying, would you be open to potentially, you know, having some type of partnership together or, or, yeah. or some type of sexual tryst together? And it's like, how progressive when you think in the 70s that this was written, but yet it's still something that's kind of looked on as not taboo. But what is this? This is kind of weird. Yeah. And same thing with like so- Joanne, right? Joanne. Like her partner says love, all the time, every year. Mackenzie, we love company, but we do want to. <laughs> yes, sorry, Jill. Yes, through sorry. more song um, type stuff. Yes, sorry. And um, I will say the so other just, piece that's grown on me is a yes. Sack. There we go. That's the one piece that has nice. grown on me as a history lover. It's yes. given me a much more complex look at the people who have changed American history by their actions of choosing to shoot uh, a president. Mm-hmm. Like I never looked at Lee Harvey Oswald the same way after I really kind of got into this piece. It was one of those pieces where I listened to it the first time and went, okay, all right, it's there. And then I go back to it. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, Santa was really exploring some character work here. Like, he was really starting to explore some, like, some deeper problems with humanity and why these people do what they do. And a lot of times it comes from disenfranchisement in the American dream, right? And the whole concept of everybody can succeed. And some people just feel, no, they can't. And so they're going to lash out. And, take, and lash out on society, and this is the way they do it. It's fascinating. And yeah. also, I'll say it's one of the more catchy Sondheim shows. Like, it's one of those there hummable songs. Like, there's a lot of hummable tunes in that. That mm-hmm. it's, like, very rare for Sondheim to write something so catchy and hummable. And yet it's written for these people who arguably are not looked on well by history because of their actions. But yet you come out of that piece going, wow, there is stuff there. that He was really finding the humanity that drove these people to the choices they made. Yeah. So fascinating. Anyway, I'll wrap it. up because there's more yes. to be said. Go love for it, it Joe. Keep um, continuing. I just love that there could be a little micro kind of like when you're reading a textbook and there's like, go to this source next. I think Mac could be our resident like <laughs> synopsis, critical analysis <laughs> person. No, it's great. There's a plethora of passion and knowledge there. We love it. Emma, what is your favorite Sondheim show? And are there any particular shows that kind of grew on you as you explored? I'm going to pick two again. I don't think I have any that has like grown on me because I think, okay, I'll clarify. The only Sondheim piece that I have ever not really been able to get into is passion and i recently tried yes. it i recently tried it again and i still couldn't get into it i was like you know what we're gonna come back to it with an open mind and i'm, I'm gonna love it this time and i still <laughs> couldn't quite get there i but, almost answered it for the grow on me one because i was like people are gonna hate on passion and i want to preempt it i really like oh i want to love passion so badly i do but it just doesn't work but i think yeah, I think my two favorites, and this is a very hard question, but I think my two favorites are probably Merrily We Roll Along and Follies. Both, both I think because they both have interesting, unusual structures to them. And for me, both of those structures work so well. Merrily, obviously, with the moving backwards. And I mean, this was like a controversial thing when it first opened, but for me, it works so well in terms of starting with these jaded characters who have been through so much and then watching them become less and less brought down less and less jaded more and more naive and innocent I think that emotionally works so well for me and then it builds towards our time which I literally can't even think about too much without getting teary like I can't even I can't even listen to it. Like, it's so much for me emotionally. And then Follies, which sort of 
starts off more straightforward and then moves into the Loveland sequence where you're in the Follies, experiencing these characters' emotions through these Follies numbers. I love that. And I love the way it builds towards that absolute chaos in the end. And then everything falls apart. And I had a discussion about Follies with some friends recently where we were talking about how it's such a devastating plot structure. The fact that in the end, absolutely nothing changes, that you're presented with these characters who are essentially miserable in the lives they've ended up in. And they spend those two hours just exploring all of the ways their lives are making them miserable. And you feel like people are going to get out of these situations. You feel like we are going to find our happy endings. And then in the end, they all just say, okay, let's go home. And you're left with the knowledge that they're just going to go back to the way their lives are mm. that they hate. I think it's such a devastating and beautiful story with such great songs too. So yeah. Holy punch to the gut. Again, I think I've mentioned this earlier. I I don't know a ton of Sondheim personally. Like I've listened listened to his songs and here and there, but like a deep dive into all of his scores. And uh, if I can get my hands on pro shots, I definitely will be keeping a little list of like, okay, Holly's definitely going to deep dive on that. Uh, So thank you all for educating me on the late and great Stephen Sondheim today too. So Nick, I'm going to pop the question your way now. What is your favorite Sondheim show? You kind of alluded into the woods, unless you have more on that. No, I mean, do I have more on it? Of course. (laughs) To me, Into the Woods is my favorite because of this idea of perfection, which you get with this fairy tales. You know, we have been told these stories numerous times in our upbringing. We think we know them. And then we get to see these perfect people not be perfect and cheat and lie and do everything they possibly can to make their dreams come true. And how horrible. You know, but the reality is that's what we do as people, mm-hmm. as humans, and 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 we do what we do to. You know, there's a line. It's like in the beginning where the baker is talking to the baker's wife about like if you know if you know what you want, then you go and you find it and you get it. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You know, it's as simple as that, and that's the reality of our lives. That. Even if we want to pretend that we're so good and we're so bad, we're not. We're just, we're nice. We're pretending yeah. to be nice. We're not good. We're not bad. We're just, we're nice. We're, and we do what we do to get what we want. And that has always been so raw and honest. And, and I love that, especially as, a, as an adult who oftentimes finds themselves in the woods, you know, mm-hmm. finds himself in the midst of, the witches and the giants and yeah. and looking for all these things that you thought you knew and then you don't, yeah. you know? It's all just a dark forest and you don't have a map, but you're going to make it. Am. Yeah. You know? And as far as the musical that I wasn't a big fan of, surprise, surprise, two of you love it a lot, was Company. I was not a fan of it but i think it was my teenage self growing up thinking i have all of this future ahead of me i don't need to worry about being alone and relationships and all of this 
now in my mid-30s, that show means something else. You know, I never was Bobby until now, but now Bobby resonates with every fiber of my being because of what he goes through and finding himself in the midst of people who have moved forward and left them behind. You mm. know, like life just moves on and then you're like, oh, wait, I was having fun. What the fuck just happened? Mm-hmm. You know, like, where did I go wrong? Was I think was I looking for the wrong things? Was I, you know, and that's Bobby, you know, yeah. and I have many of those friends in my life, you know, that have been, come on, let's, let's settle down or, you know, so to be able to see a show like that that I didn't like before because I was, you know, teenage, you know, gay man doing whatever he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now I am in my mid-30s and I'm like, oh, huh. Hmm. Yeah. Now this resonates a little differently. Yeah. You know. Of course. Yeah. yeah like, I appreciate you sharing that with us too, like literally tracking your life it, with this journey of exploration of Sondheim's text, like, oof, that's what he does, friends. <laughs> provides provides little manuals to at least expose the mess to us, I guess. Like, we're all going to be in the mess in some shape mm-hmm. or form. Okay, so we've kind of all subtly touched on this next question, but I'll have us kind of dive just a little bit further, put any more sprinkles or frosting on the cake that we've already kind of started baking the bakers in my mind now that we're talking woods. So this next question, what do you think it is about Sondheim's work that makes him so revered by performers? And again, we're kind of cracking this open, but Emma, I'll have you kind of spearhead us on this because I feel like we've heard the least amount in this question from you so far. I want to hear your side of things. Yeah, I think everyone has sort of touched on this a little bit, but I think it, what always comes to mind with a song time is the way he puts such he puts such universal experiences into such incredibly specific language that allows you to channel those emotions we're all familiar with in like ways you've never thought about and there are so many songs that come to mind when i think about that but things like being alive this these lyrics that these are not the ways we necessarily think about our life experiences, but to hear someone put them into words like that has this ability to conjure up an emotion you didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, I forget which one of you was saying this earlier, but also like the, the example of watching company when you were younger and you haven't had this life experience, but sort of thinking that you did feeling like, Oh yeah, I understand this. I relate to this, even though you don't, but he can make you feel like you're standing something that is so foreign to us. But right. yeah, I just think he has such a remarkable ability to put feelings into words, which is something we all struggle with as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And then with Patrick, Nick and Mackenzie, whoever kind of wants to take the stab at this one. And I guess too, like, because all of you have kind of said some shape or form, maybe thinking and trying to hit home the revered by performers, by performers part of the question, right? Like what makes Sondheim's works? Yeah, Nick, you want to kind of snowball um, off of that? 
I think, and I'll answer this in my own experience, of course, as a, as an actor first in the world of musical theater, which I have many singers first, you know, of in my life that are never really seem to gravitate towards Sondheim first. And I always go back to why, why, and why do I, as an actor who mm-hmm. loves text and the clues and the subtext so much, love his work and find his work easier at times for myself. And I think came down to his ability to write for actors, to write for people that think as characters first, not musically, not my 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 posture here and my throat and my in the and my larynx and my soft palate. No. He thinks about in my heart, in my ickiness, in my gut, and what's driving me in my emotions first, mm-hmm. which is very different than the Jason Robert Browns, you know, of the world. Right. So I think for many performers that, that love the art of storytelling, not just singing, he gives you a bit more meat to chew on right? as a performer slash actor, I think. Yeah, almost like more of a meal, I guess, yeah. to dive into. Patrick, you're nodding your head quite a bit. You want to snowball? Yeah, that? yeah. I love that answer. I also think, because I think people often say that Sondheim, like, there's all these, like, weird kind of taboos, obviously, in the theater world. And one that, like, I often hear is, like, don't do Sondheim in auditions because, like, <laughs> like it's too much. Or, like, Sondheim is the hardest to sing. Um, and I actually don't agree with, like, any of those things. Like, I actually think Sondheim's incredibly easy to sing. I actually think Sondheim's, like, because I think, and I think I really, like, and Nick, what you were saying helps actually clarify why, which is that he really, he writes for, he writes exactly what he needs to write for the character and the emotion, which isn't the same thing as creating like, um, you know, like a song that's like fun to sing or isn't the same thing as like making sure you get to like do impressive vocal pyrotechnics. Right. But it's like his songs give you all of the tools you need to tell a story on your own terms as well. And that's what I think is so incredible that also he still creates enough space for a wide array of kind of interpretive work for the actor, but that the songs themselves give you those tools. Like, I think it's so smart that like Send in the Clowns is all written in a spoken register. Mm-hmm. Like that, and that already leads the actor to like do certain things, right? When you sing a Sondheim song, you feel yourself being guided by Sondheim, but then also in a way that is also asking you like, a pick your own, you know, story, like which direction do you want to go? And that I think is so like, so incredible. You can't not want to take on his characters. Right. And I just uh, like to speak to that too, that the little, you know, being in Into the Woods personally, and the vibes of hearing his pieces throughout, you know, musical theater playlists, etc. There is all those layers present of, you can tell that there's space that he's left for performers to kind of put their flair on it. I think it's, and we've talked about this earlier in this panel too, is you can tell that everybody's Bobby or everybody's Baker's wife. There's never going to be a single person that will play it exactly like the person who just played it because he, no pun intended, but I guess intended bakes into a character of like, this is just writing for a human. So of course each human vehicle is going to bring something new to it yeah love that that's very resonant with me mac how about you round us out yeah i mean so why is he so revered and i think he sondheim is someone 
anybody can come to. Like, there are certain composers who write the big power ballads that require you to have a really good understanding of your voice, like, in order to hit those big notes. Like, Jason Robert Brown is someone who writes some really big belter tunes that are as complex as song time musically, but maybe not quite as characterized. And I think that's why so many actors and art and actresses and artists like sometimes because anybody can come in and sing Send in the Clowns because as Patrick said, it was written for Glynis Jones, who we all know her as the mom from Mary Poppins, but she was not a big singer. And so he wrote the music to reflect the natural way she would she spoke to make sure it was easy for her to get into. And that's what sometimes does like no more is not a big belter tune. Like, yes, it has some big notes that you have to hit. But for the most part, it's a monologue. A boy like that is a monologue. He is a performer's composer where it's like, I mean, a lot of people call him the Shakespeare musical theater. And he is because he wrote for the performer. Like Rodgers and Hammerstein, who saw in time training under Hammerstein, but they wrote a lot of music and shows that were designed to have songs transcend the show and become the radio hit. Mm-hmm. Sondheim was never interested in making Last Midnight the next great Beyonce single. That was not right. his desire or interest. He was wanting to write for the human and for the character. So anytime an actor or, or actress or artist or performer get into doing this show, into, into, into one of his shows, you can see them just light up because they're getting to play humanity they're getting like mm-hmm. they're getting to play in a sandbox that very few ever get to play in and yet they're going to excavate so much of humanity in it am i see your hands up there's all at you yeah piggyback yeah i wanted to pull off this question a little bit too because i think there's an interesting way in which sondheim is revered not just by performers but by everyone who sort of loves musical theater and it's similar to what you were saying mac in the sense that i think so the last last roundtable i did here was on our musicals high art and this mm. sort of age-old question of like are musicals really art or are they just fun entertainment and i think sondheim is sort of everyone's go-to like no sondheim is an artist like this is high art it's really easy to take his musicals as an example of how musical theater can be more than entertainment it can be more than frivolous fun can really say something about the human experience and i think that is a huge part of why sondheim has developed this sort of god reputation and it is it's what mac is saying the way that he writes these human experiences without interest in is this commercially viable is this going to be a hit it's just about telling the story and yeah i think that's a huge part of this sort of pedestal that Sondheim gets put on. Yeah, I think that potentially too speaks to his longevity uh, as well, right? He's coming from a place of watching the work from for others with others, a team kind of work mentality. And again, just having a taste of all of his works. Every There's no one in the same. Like, it doesn't seem like nope. there's ever a piece that I was like, oh, he must be writing this during this political time period, because both of these pieces, like, are following the same script or the same formula. And even just you all cracking open different pieces I may be not as familiar with. I'm like, holy moly, I did not realize Merrily was kind of an inverted chronology. And I think that's really cool. And he kind of 
leaned into to change the shaking up a form and stuff, right? Along along that, uh, like lovely things said, and I'm going to also pick up, but we've kind of alluded to as well, like Sondheim trained under or was heavily inspired and influenced by Oscar Hammerstein II. And, you know, so kind of under his wing, blossoming into the theater sphere, Sondheim kind of catapulted to collaborating with many key and influential members of the arts community throughout his career. And I guess this is also to speak to potentially his longevity because he wasn't afraid to bump elbows with other people and not just kind of pigeonhole to one one partner. So I, who do you feel was his best collaborator? And feel free, I guess, just stating and you don't necessarily have to give a why, but you could give a why as well. It's up to you. Balls in your court. Uh, Patrick, we'll go Patrick, then Emma, if that's chill. Cool. Well, so I wanted to go first just because, so honestly, if I answered this question, like it's James LeBlanc, but I want to say Hal Prince. And I wanted to jump because I'm like, everyone's going to say Hal Prince. But I want to say <laughs> I'm so yeah yeah which is funny because I really could speak to James LePine but no I I think what's so cool about the Prince Sondheim relationship is that like you so rarely see producers able to especially like ever in any moment in time but being able to kind of pick up works that are actually challenging both in form and in thematic content and make them commercially viable in a way that you can like actually keep doing this work and platforming it. And like, I'm just like producers nowadays are like fucking cowards. They would not, you would not find like a Hal Prince song. You don't find Hal Prince song time relationships anymore. Like producers wanted for this, like big, these big commercial tickets. They want like sure hits, humble tunes, themes that easily resonate, things that don't challenge people. Like, and it's so cool that they were able to, for like a solid decade, make this work that is like artistically a masterpiece and make it like a commercially viable art scene. Um, right. Yeah, I definitely well said. And in and amongst like yeah. the other people who were lifting musical theater or trying to lift musical theater off of its feet, like, yes, definitely a partnership worth supporting. Emma, do you want to? Go off that. Yeah, that's actually a great. I was sort of going to go along the same lines there. I was actually recently researching the sort of some of the like differentiations in the way he worked with different collaborators. And one of the things that was pointed out that I thought was interesting, particularly between the difference between Hal Prince and James LePine, is that Hal Prince was far more interested in making the works commercially viable. Hal Prince was like, a producer and for him it did come down to like okay how do we make this work for audiences who will like it who will pay how do we break even as opposed to James Lapine who was very much used to working in the not-for-profit circles and so you look at something like Sunday in the Park with George which premiered at Playwrights Horizons like it was a lot less about that for him which is interesting because then when I look at the list of collaborations with both of these people all of my favorites are on the Hal Prince list. And I think there's something to be said for, I think especially about like Merrily and, you know, Merrily famously flopped. Big Killed time. the partnership and... in the water. Yeah. Like <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> Not a good scene. But what I find so interesting about Merrily is that they continuously, not just Sondheim, but people continuously through history have 
been committed to making Merrily work. Like everyone is trying to fix the issues, trying to take this piece, which has so much potential. And okay, how do we get this to the point where audiences are not walking out halfway through? How do we make this work for audiences that I think is like, at the end of the day, kind of a noble undertaking that at the end of the day, we can do our we can do our artsy, weird, avant-garde musicals, but at the end of the day, there's something to be said for also making it something that the audience will enjoy. And I love that they did not. I love that they didn't see the audiences walking out of Merrily and think, oh, they didn't understand it, but we know the piece is good. They said, okay, so how do we fix it? How do we make it work? And right. I think that's part of the longevity for sure. Yeah, and like the fact that art is made for others to absorb and partake in, right? It's kind of kind mm-hmm. of like coming from a, a almost like a sense of humility in that sense. Yeah. Nick, do you, yes, what, what do you think really, would be the best comedy? I mean, I think it would be pretty obvious I'm yeah. a big James fan. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's because like Emma was saying, it's that it he was a big supporter of just like trying you know trying something whether or not it was commercially viable not that many of sometimes shows ended up being commercially viable at the end of the day or not so that really shows to you how incredible he is because most of his shows weren't that big and Mm -hmm. there's still a humongous group of sondheim fans out there like you cannot get into any theater without separating yourself from the non-sondheim fans like, that's how big the man is, that even though he made shows that weren't, that he, made, he made no Wicked, he made yeah. no Lion King, he made no Phantom of the Opera, he made no Late Miss. But somehow, we're here, talking about mm-hmm. all of his huge shows, because that's what he was capable of doing, you know? And I think, it's, I don't know if it's really about who his favorite or his best collaborator was, but how he, how capable not allowing commercial success to be the end all be all for him, right. you know, yeah. he can, he had success and then he didn't have success. And if any of you follow the Sondheim letters that he writes to people, like he would constantly be like, oh, today was a bad review day. We'll try again. To-. That's what he did. And he continued to go and continue to move on and continue to try and continue to find partners that would support him and support the, like his vision and, yeah. and really he was the masterpiece here and anyone else who did not want to support him they were the failures honestly right yeah yeah there's a sense of resilience that kind of like transcends mm-hmm. others in a way yeah. that this man carried for sure what, what's your opinion on his the best collaborator well sense? i mean my answer also is going to be how prince because mm-hmm. i mean within a decade those two did so much but since we already talked a lot about the prince sondheim collab i have a bit of a different spin because they actually never really collaborated on a show per se but i will say his best collaborator was oscar hammerstein the man who taught him everything he learned at the feet of arguably one of the greatest men or men of the musical theater it was rogers and hammerstein together who married the concept of music dance and and song into one art form in oklahoma and then you know branched up from there but what hammerstein understood was you don't just write like God bless Cole Porter, may he rest in peace. 
But he didn't always write, I mean, he wrote a lot, Anything Goes. It's a really fun show. But those songs can be rewritten, and it's the show's been rewritten, redone so many times because it isn't character specific. The character of Ado Annie and her songs, I Can't Say No, would not work with Lori. Lori cannot sing those songs. And that is what Hammerstein understood, and that's what he imparted to Sondheim was you write for character. You don't write always for the most big hit single. You write to drive the character forward. And that's what Hammerstein and Rogers understood was you write it so every song that character sings, the audience is learning something new about that character. That character is learning something about themselves or is divulging a new discovery about themselves. And that will propel the plot forward. And Mm -hmm. Sondheim took that lesson to heart where... The witch would never sing a Mrs. Lovett song, and a and a Anita would never sing a oh what's her name from Merrily Mary we would never sing a Mary song. Like every one of those characters is individual and unique, and that comes from him learning at the feet of <laughs> Oscar Hammerstein, who knew that lesson. And yeah. Sondheim, when you, again if you go back to his first show he ever wrote, which is the first one in the book here which is Saturday night, which is not done very often. It's not great. And Hammerstein called Sondheim out for that. But Sondheim went, oh yeah, I wrote, we found this in my school, you know, like, hey, what do you think of this? And Sondheim was like, or Hammerstein was like, do you want my real opinion? And Sondheim was like, yeah, of course. He goes, well, this is wrong. 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 (laughs) And you know, that really helped Sondheim. And Sondheim really learned character. And I think that's something that we are still struggling with today with some composers is, they don't always write for character. They write for melodic reasons. They write for this. They write for that. Jason Robert yeah. Brown is someone who has said, like, I work, like, I learned at the feet of Sondheim. So uh, he writes stuff like that. And there are certain people, Lin-Manuel Miranda has said how much he learned from Sondheim and how much, because, I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, everybody forgets, but he worked on the 2009 revival West Side Story where they had to translate the lyrics into Spanish. And mm-hmm. so, Lynn Miranda got a front row seat to Arthur Lawrence and some Sondheim in that. So, but I mean, that's the most important thing is Hammerstein gave Sondheim his base that he really yeah. grew from and what he brought to every single one of his shows is you write for character. Every song that is sung cannot be sung by anybody else in that show. You cannot picture somebody else singing that song in the show because mm-hmm. Sondheim was so dedicated to finding the right song that fit the character. And his books are full of cut material and cut songs that he went, eh, no, too commercial, didn't quite work, didn't quite find the character in this, back to the drawing board we go. And that's the power of Sondheim, and that's what he learned from his greatest partner, who is the late great mm-hmm. Oscar Hammerstein, who helped give us the modern American musical theater landscape. So there we go. Yeah, uh, I think that, thing. yeah, I think that's so fascinating, and you brought this up, Mac, and we've brought this up to throughout the panel of, yeah, like Sondheim learning from Hammerstein, and then Jason Robert Brown also grabbing stuff from Sondheim. Like, this is kind of a bit of a side tangent, but to pivot us, I just think it's lovely to hear artists learning from artists and picking what works and what doesn't work and not being afraid to also put their own style and flair into their works. You know, it's just, it's lovely to kind of see the evolution. I only realized a couple of days ago that Oscar Rogers and Hammerstein were such a vital facet in, in Sondheim's artistic upbringing and also as like parent role model, personal upbringing mm-hmm. as well. Um, Emma, do you want to spiral off that? 
Yeah, I was just going to say, and Sondheim then trained Adam Gettle in the same way that Oscar Hammerstein trained Sondheim, and Adam Gettle is Mary Rogers' son, so the sort of connection that continues, yeah. Yeah, there's lineage in musical theater. You can trace, like, if you really want to have fun with musical theater DNA, you can trace everything back up to Rogers and Hammerstein. They are kind of the founding seed of musical theater, and then everybody kind of spreads out from there. Mm. But yeah, Sondheim, he and he, he was big on teaching. There's a great YouTube series of him where he does master classes with performers, and he teaches just basic things you wouldn't think about like there's a great video of him teaching the song my friends from sweeney todd and i didn't really i mean i probably subtly realized this but they're like all the beginning of the song there's a lot of s sounds and so the and so he tells the performer like you should be whispering like hit those s's like really draw them out these are my friends see how they glisten like, you know, like, Sondheim was all about teaching. He was huge on master classes and going into schools. And every artist you hear about from Helena Bonham Carter to Rachel Zegler in, 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 in the latest West Side Story, they go, getting to sit at the feet of Sondheim and hearing him talk and really, you know, like, break down the music, the lyrics for us, and really kind of give us a deeper view into that is so vital. Invaluable. And I mean, Jason Robert Brown also does a lot of master classes, and that's the sign of a really good artist is they're willing to, they're not going to hold the secrets that they've learned. Instead, they were going to pass it along so the seeds can continually be spread and grown and developed and cultivated. So, absolutely. And I think that brilliantly segues us right into the next question. And we've, you know, talked about him as composer, teacher, collaborator. And let's dig even deeper with our sort of text analysis. You know, Sondheim really liked to compose music, but often more well, he's more well remembered for his lyrics, especially with his tunes not being as hummable, which we'll get to in a follow-up question. But a lot of his lyrics are ingrained and most memorable and people experience his works. So I toss this question to the group now, which score composed by Sondheim, do you think is his best? And I'll kind of say loosely best because I feel like we revere him, uh, his whole sort of canon as great, but is his best and is it different than maybe the previous question of the favorite show of his that you have? Mac, do you want to light the torch on this one? I will light the torch on this one. And I will say my favorite score is Sondheim because you're right. He often talks about in his books about how he Loved writing scores, but then nobody wanted him to write music. It was always, write us the lyrics, Sondheim, write us the lyrics. And he's like, but I can do both. I can do more. Give me a chance. And they're like, yeah, no. I mean, Gypsy was famous for that, where Jules Stein had to come in because Alfred Merman said, I don't trust him as a composer. He's too young. But, you know, I mean, my favorite score of his has to be Sweeney Todd. That is such a cinematic score. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful score. It's epic. It's, I mean, Sondheim, this is the show where he wrote the most music. Like, the, I think that show, I believe, is 85, 80% score, where even in the dialogue scenes, there is underscoring that is happening. Mm-hmm. And it gives us such a great cinematic quality that when you watch the show and realize just how much the music helps heighten every moment of that. Like, there's the great moment where Sweeney's choked out Pirelli. 
and Tobias is coming up the stairs, so he throws Pirelli into the trunk, and Pirelli's hand is dangling out the trunk, so you see his fingers. And sure enough, Tobias comes in, and then Sweeney sees it, and the music illustrates this finger wiggle, like that Pirelli's Mm. doing throughout the scene as Sweeney's trying to get Tobias out of the room, and the finger is wiggling more and more and more and more, and it builds and builds and builds until finally Tobias is out, and Sweeney grabs the razor, flips the trunk open, pulls Pirelli up, and gets him. But it's like, the, the moment, like, you just look at that moment from a theater point of view, and we never really get a cinematic score like that on stage, because it's so hard to do. Like, like John Williams is one of those few great composers that I always wished he had written a musical, but he never did. He did film. But he, mm-hmm. but there is, and doing something so cinematic like that, where you're going in and out of text and music, and you've got to underscore it, like, some composers are like, yeah, I don't got time for that. We're going to do the songs, and maybe we'll do some vamping before the song, but like, you know, like, that'll be, you know, like, but Sondheim really got into the score here, and the fact that he incorporated so much of uh, hints throughout the piece of what the big twist of the piece is, which I will not spoil because that is such a great reveal <laughs> when you find out what no happens at the end of the show. But just the fact that melodically he's giving hints. So if you're actually listening to the score and actually are understanding what's happening, you get mm-hmm. a lot out of that score where you go, oh crap, he was telling us the whole time from basically Love page that. one what is going to happen at the end mm-hmm. and just like his work of incorporating the dear the dearest earring the very famous opera operatic tone for death that we all know that is incorporated into scores across the spectrum the fact that that's in throughout the piece there's always this element of death mm-hmm. like it's just it's so really good it, from what like you're breaking down max it's like he he wrote this like the score is like another character in a way the score is completely another piece, character which is, is yeah Oh, it is, is just so good. And I mean, it, yeah. Company and Sweeney are always battling it out for number one on the list. So, I mean, tomorrow Sweeney could be number yeah, one. Earlier right. today, Sweeney was number one until I went back and listened <laughs> to Company, the new Spanish version with Antonio Banderas. I went, ah, no, Lacho still gets the number one spot. Love it. I feel like Mac has this checklist like on his nightstand. And every morning when he wakes up, he's like, <laughs> okay, I have to ask myself, what Sondheim is it today? What, are, what, what am Sondheim I feeling today? Is it today? Love it. Nick, what's your favorite score? And if it is different, if it's not different, maybe just elaborating why the lyrics resonate for you. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not different. (laughs) (laughs) It's into the woods again. I have to say, even though I am a huge Sondheim fanatic and I love everything he's done, it'll always just go back to the woods for me and go back Mm -hmm. to the... We've talked about even... I mean, some of the uh, Into the Woods songs, I guess, could be popularized (laughs) by this point. Mm -hmm. Like children will listen, and it's that from the palace. They are popularized sometimes songs from that score that singers now do. But overall, I like I. It's not a show that I go back to, and I'm like, oh my god, this song is a bop. No, it's a this score altogether. You gotta listen from the beginning so you can feel how this person started her wish and ended their wish, and then listen to all of the wishes not be what they done as. So just when I think about an arc, when I think about character analysis, I always go back to this show as my mm. brightest, biggest inspiration and, and yeah. example of. 
Yeah, there are so many lines in that that crack open a person. And also the fact I think that fairy tales are the crux and spine of that whole piece. There's the constant humdrum, like we've all been children before. You know, we've all had innocence. We've all lost innocence. We've all gone through these windy paths of life. And we know things things. now. Many valuable things that, yeah, we definitely never knew before. And maybe we still don't. But if we do. It's definitely a show about awakening, learning, and becoming. Mm -hmm. Becoming new. Becoming something more. Better. Or maybe not better, but. Into the Woods is a great example of light motif like that show does such a good job of just the little vamps you hear in the music let you know right away which character you're getting into like the princes have the same melodic tune before they show up same thing with little red the baker and his wife have theirs the witch has theirs like yeah it's such a good job on that show when you have so many inner cutting plot lines but the fact that he was able to kind of do the john williams thing john williams does this a lot of light motif work to kind of let you know what you're going to be seeing or let or elicit the response he needs you to get. So the fact yeah. that yeah. yet so many great light motifs set up in that first song, that first 12 minutes of the show sets yeah. up a whole bunch of light motifs. The only that, that doesn't really get set up. Actually, no, I take that back. The prince's trumpet sound is set up in, in, in that mm-hmm. as well when, when they head off to the ball. So mm-hmm. sometimes in one song sets up every light motif you're probably going to need to know and then just plays with that throughout the whole piece. It is yeah. such a great light motif show it's that definitely so masterful and fantastical, I will say. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. pivoting the torch into the woods to the fellow little red at the bottom of my screen, <laughs> Emma, what is your what score is the best in your opinion? And is it different from your favorite show? This is the hardest question I've had to answer so far. For the other two, like favorite song, favorite musical. I mean, I chose two, but like I had clear answers. Whereas this one, I really feel like I could pick something out of every score that really sets that one apart for me. However, I think I will come back to Follies because I love the way Follies plays with different genres and different historical periods of musical theater. The way he sets up all these little songs as references to real numbers from the Ziegfeld Follies and it's just like a fun little collection of him playing with the history of music and at the same time you know him dividing it sort of between those numbers and then the actual character numbers that are telling the story of our sort of main four characters yeah but really like I think you could name any show and I can find something about that score that I could highlight as why that one works so well so yeah yeah. I'm definitely writing again down research follies because Emma is really selling me on follies I really Um, like follies and again picking up what you're all putting down too I feel like there's so many essays that can be written on each Sondheim work and multiple essays written on each of the same work because through every mechanism of what makes a Sondheim show is what you all are educating me on today. There's never, like, you can keep uncracking and uncracking and uncracking. And yeah, I think that's just so magical. Patrick, enlighten us even more. What score is the best for you? And is it different than your favorite show? Yeah. First, I just want to say, 
you want to get within follies, the Emil de Staunton pro shot is really so well fun. Bill so, amazing. That that's, too. that's there. So but uh, yeah, right. it's funny. So I actually had three uh, shows that I was like, okay, these are, these, these are a safe three. Sweeney, Into the Woods, Follies. All of them were set. So Amazing. that means I got to go fully off script. And also, for, none of them are, like, they're, none of them are even in my top three favorite Sondheim shows. Like, but they really are, I think, for all of these people, said the scores are really worthy of consideration. But I think yeah. here I'll get a chance to just riff and do a defensive passion. So, okay, I great. Passion, Love it. I think passion would probably be actually at the bottom of most people's list for this question because it's a show that I mean, it's honestly a show that like basically says "fuck you" to a humble tune. <laughs> the but what I think is so incredible actually about the score and passion is first of all there are all these musical through lines that keep getting communicated, all these lay motifs that emerge, but also the way that don't sync up with each other and shows that kind of. How bubbling underneath all of these characters in these relationships are these instabilities and these like inabilities to connect. Like Fosca's character, her music explores like atonality in the strangest moments, and like it, musically, you are able to get a sense of just how pained these characters are. And the fact that the score kind of refuses the coherence of the discrete song, like really lends itself to this kind of. I don't know, like to pull like contemporary language, like it's just so vibey, but in yeah. like an, but in such an unsettling way that it, despite the fact that like on surface level, he's creating a lot of beautiful, brief melody lines, but the overall ambience he's able to produce is really quite like discomforting, mm-hmm. um, which is perfect for the kind of emotional relationships he's trying to interrogate in the piece. Right. I love that. On a passion revisit. <laughs> yes, you are. I'm, I was just about to say, I'm picking up my pen to be like, and passion is another one to. The uh, Donna Murphy pro shot. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And also Maren Maisie's in that one as well. The late great yeah. Maren Maisie. Great. So I, I think this is a perfect, Patrick, I'm going to have you kick off the follow-up question, which you've kind of alluded to with the passion being a big old F you. So it's often been said that Sondheim is not a hummable composer. And I feel like we all know the answer to this, but let's elaborate. <laughs> Do you feel that this detracts from his work? Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. No, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, I think there are so many, there are so many reasons that we could get into. I think, yeah, like you say, my last answer really perfectly sets it up. Like in some cases, a show's content should refuse probability. But I also do want to like, because this is such a thing, I also still want to like put like, like kind of, question the question itself too because i know people say this but i often find myself walking down the street just like humming or singing like various Mm songs i think the thing with sondheim is sondheim knows when you need like a discreet hummable like you know 11 o'clock hour number but then he also knows when you need to resist that urge and Mm. so he his shows there's like an economy to the hummable um tune to them that is not as that is not true of many musical theater shows but so for Sondheim it's like he picks and chooses like when do we need this to be a hummable moment mm-hmm. um, and yeah so I I think I think he is hummable but he's hummable when he needs to be hummable I'm wondering too and I'll pivot right to you uh, in a second Mac too I've never seen Sondheim as like this is a song and dance composer 
or, you know, <laughs> musician. And it, this is why I'm saying this is funny because I personally, I, like I classify myself as an actor and a singer who moves very well. And it's just funny how I haven't like been married to Sondheim's work because I feel like just by nature of what my instrument can do, like his works, I'm like, yes, let's do Sondheim's all yeah. the time. Because there's like, yeah, I don't have to do Foxtrot every second yeah. number or whatever. So I'm wondering if that maybe has something about it too, right? Where this idea mm-hmm. of the hummable is like mm-hmm. the tap your toe kind of big flourish numbers that that just aren't present in his work, but that doesn't mean that they're lesser than or what have you, mm-hmm. right? Um, Mac, I'll help you kind of piggyback on All right, this. well, <laughs> so I'm going to have to slightly disagree with Patrick. I broke this into (laughs) two separate answers because as a performer, the lack of humability in the songs don't bother me whatsoever. Like I still get into his canon because I have the interest in diving into the lyrics and into the score and really giving Sondheim the time to gestate and, you know, grow and cultivate within my, my, my mind. But from a general audience point of view, and I can speak to this because I've brought my dad to a number of Sondheim shows. And he is like, I mean, he grew up playing hockey and baseball. He wasn't the theater kid. So he went, so he always goes, Mac, I don't get your love of Sondheim. I just can't get him. And part of it is he goes, I don't know the lyrics, nor do I have the passion, but I'm bummed to <laughs> sit and spend my day reading his lyrics so I can understand Into the Woods better. And that's where I go. And that's why I think general audiences sometimes do have a bit of a struggle. And that's why it, sometimes shows, when we look at the history of the shows, they weren't always a hit right off the bat. Sunday in the Park, Sweeney, Into the Woods was probably his most commercial success off the top. But there's a lot of his shows that didn't quite hit. And yet some of his earlier works where he was collaborating with Leonard Bernstein, Jules Stein, they were a little bit were caught right off the top because audiences were able to kind of get into them. Like there's a reason why the song tonight from West side story is still no Maria is still known today and is hummed everywhere we go. It's because general audiences do like the Rogers and Hammerstein's the woodwebbers a bit more because the first way you catch a general audience member is the tune, the melody versus mm-hmm. the lyrics. Now, once you kind of get them hooked, it's just, it's just like a good Beyonce tune. Beyonce, you listen to Beyonce, the first thing I kind of go to is the melody. Okay, I get, I, I get her music. And it's like, oh, you're actually reading into her lyrics and you go, oh, wow, she's actually saying something here. She's actually mm-hmm. telling a really powerful, complex story. Sondheim goes about it the opposite way where he goes, I'm going to tell you a really complex story with my lyrics, then you're going to grow to like me over time. And I think for general audiences, sometimes you maybe don't have the passion or the drive to really sit and play the album back a million times over or pick up his wonderful Bible of works, you know? <laughs> I feel like I'm a freaking like... like what, what I was going to say, mean? be careful, Mac. People are going to think that you we're going to give these all out to every... I know, apparently. Like, like, what is this? Like, like the, like the or that we're getting paid. The, the yeah. Yes, like, like, call now. Hashtag not sponsored. I'm going to say that as the room hashtag not sponsored. But that's the thing is like, sometimes doesn't make it easy for your audiences and that's okay he wants them to come away thinking and you know 
working themselves up in a bit and coming away going, what was Sweeney Todd really saying there when he's singing about this? Or Mrs. Lovett or Sally from Follies. Like, what are they talking about? You know, and then yeah. that kind of gets them going. But some audiences will come away just going, all right, that was a fun musical where, where people got baked into pies. And they may mm-hmm. not go back and listen deeper to what Mrs. Lovett was saying, where she very clearly sets up that she is in a very gray area when she's telling the story in, in Poor Thing, where she talks about Sweeney's wife going to, getting in, going and taking arsenic. But you have to read the lyrics to understand what she's really doing mm-hmm. here in order yeah. to get the bigger thing at the end. And that's the same thing with Merrily, right? Like, Opening Doors is a great song if you take the time to read all the great little over like over speaking lyrics and you hear about mary's terrible disaster with magazines with pop-up pictures mm-hmm. if you're just coming out of that show going all right da-da-da-dum, ba-dum, ba-da-dum, I, like, they couldn't sing this melody or they couldn't sing the, the music they could maybe hum the odd tune but not really get into it like beyonce where you get into the all the single ladies all the single ladies right like you hear like you know exactly the music right like that's the thing with song time is from a performer point of view hummability not a problem but when you right. get into general audience where you're trying to catch them and retain them so they keep coming back for your work, it's a bit more challenging. And that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. It never detracts from his work if you take the time to really get into it. But some audiences may never want to get into it. And that's kind of where Sondheim can be a bit more elusive. It's like Shakespeare. Shakespeare, sometimes yeah. people really get into him right away. And sometimes people come away going, I don't know what the frick they're saying. Like, God almighty what is this to be or not to be shit, right? And it's like, oh no, there's so much more there if you read it. But some people just go, I don't got time for that, Mac. I got to go do like other things with my life. I got to focus on my own thing. And that's mm-hmm. okay. But, you know, sometimes I can see people biting at the bit. <laughs> Everyone's itching. Yeah. So Yeah, could, could I stop briefly because you disagreed with me sure. very briefly? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Defend. Bring it on, Pat. Yeah, yeah. I would just say, I would just say like, like, I think if we're thinking of the general musical theater audience, sure, like Sondheim does not write for the general musical theater audience, but I also have so many stories of like more friends that I can count on both of my hands of people that have gone, I hate musicals. And I go, okay, sit down. We're going to watch like Sunday in the park with George or sit down. We're going to watch Follies or sit down. We're going to watch company. And people are going to be like, Oh, I didn't know musicals could do this. I'm like, yeah, that's because you're, what you think of is the humble tune. And then like many of these people have then actually gained an interest in various musicals right like i was yeah. i was shocked when Sondheim passed on twitter i'm listening on like academic twitter the amount of random academics that have nothing to do with the theater world that were all like sharing stories about like how Sondheim made them connect to like the theater world yeah and so i think if you take like the assumed musical theater audience like sure it might be like less accessible to them but i think there's also so many stories of how Sondheim excites an audience that is not the assumed musical theater audience Absolutely. and actually is an entry point into in a sense, he he's kind of, this is just my opinion, but he seems Brechtian in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Where like yes. Brecht is a theater practitioner who, yeah, I'm just hearing what you all are saying. He seems Brechtian in a sense where it's like a representation of what is actually going on and the, the stories that are being told that if you just go to watch a Brecht piece for the sake of watching a Brecht piece, you are not going to understand Mother Courage directly as you're seeing it on stage. But if, you know, it sits with you and it resonates with you, and if you go back and you unpack what each things are representing and, you know, what means what, then you're like, oh, there, there is like this outside. It's almost like both Brecht and Sondheim, maybe this is for like a later essay, but 
are kind of like approaching art from outside of the lens of what art is perceived to be. And they're using it for other realms, whether it be politically or whether it be, you know, a a message on humanity. Again, this is, I could talk about Brecht for hours though. So this is about Sondheim, but there are some links and I will (laughs) research the two together. Sondheim fought theater conventions Um, all the time. That was the joy of Sondheim is he never went with the norm. Like, look at the 80s. When they were writing mega musicals like Les Mis, Phantom, Cats, what did Sondheim go into? He wrote a piece about a painting and then wrote a weird version of a fairy tale that yeah. were, neither one of them were big mega drop a chandelier, but they did something else that was better and different. And Sondheim always bucked. And that's the joy of him. So, I mean, even though he may not yeah. always be the most humble composer, never means he was any less than. In fact, he, I think he was greater than some of the more humble composers because he didn't just go for the humble Did something too. different outside but, of the box. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Emma, it's like Emma and Nick, you were Sunday in the Park, right? The, mm-hmm. the in, in Move On, right? Like the don't matter if it's something new. I let it come from you, right? Like give the world something more to see, right? Like that is Sondheim in a nutshell, right? Nick, you were biting at the bit. Do you want to add some? <laughs> so I think the question here might just be what's causing the commotion, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Because at the end of the day, we can't start to compare Wicked and Next to Normal. Mm-hmm. We can't. You know, it's the same way. Like, we can't really go around being like, well, this show didn't hum as much, but that one, that had a bop. You know, it's also different and it's also subjective on what you are looking for as an audience audience member as a composer as a director as we have talked about already his need to be popular was not always there you know so his need to ride the next big musical theater pop tune was also not there Mm -hmm. um i agree with both patrick and mac you know i have many times walked around humming many of his songs you know i there's many times where i walk around someone and i'm like you're so nice (laughs) (laughs) you know because you there's those and it's maybe it's what mac was saying maybe it's not necessarily the music but it's the lyrics or maybe it is a, a mixture of the two at the end of the day there are people out there who will choose to go searching for a show that's going to make them think, that's going to change them from the beginning to the end. Those are the type of shows I love. You know, mm-hmm. if you had to ask me what kind of show I want to see, I want to cry. I want to, I do not want a happy ending. I want just people on stage being humans. Mm-hmm. Do I, does that mean that I hate hairspray? No. You know, I still love the big fun shows where we kick and, you know, there's big mm-hmm. dance numbers. Character probably wasn't the biggest. There's still a good lesson <laughs> to learn from that show. Yes, yeah. um, <laughs> but there, there's shows for everybody. So I don't know to go around asking if he is the most humble quest composer is the best question out there. Just because I think he did write hummable songs, but to whom? That's a different story, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? 
Well, and even in the documentary Six by Sondheim, which I'm sure all of us have watched, and I did a little bit of homework coming in today, he says that like quite bluntly in an interview. He's like, I don't like to the, I mean, this is paraphrasing. I'm pretty sure Sondheim didn't say, I don't give a shit. But basically, his vibe was, <laughs> I don't give a shit that my stuff isn't hummable. Right. And there was actually the scene with, oh gosh, American Ferrera, Darren Chris, and yeah. who's it? Yeah, Jeremy. Really yeah, yes. And, and, and yes. And, and the character straight up says, yes. right. Like does the Oops. cheeky, yeah. like, oh, well, it doesn't have, like, it doesn't have a, it doesn't it's have not a, beach, a it doesn't melody. Hum. Like what do you, yes, 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 yes. And I just, yeah. I snapped in that moment because I was like, go off, Sondheim. You baked that right into one of your pieces. I'm obsessed. That's almost um, closest to his real life. Like, like he said, like that's the only really autobiographical yeah. song he ever wrote was that one. And it's because yeah, it's like, it, it's, it. It, 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 yeah, he goes, I've been in the office where I've had the producer do the Sondheim. It's not hummable. Like I can't sell this to a general audience. And he goes, oh, come on. Like just give the, me the, the shot the, that I want. The like, cheek and the going yeah. against the system in that mm-hmm. line. I was like, yes, Emma, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and the, the little melody he hums after he says that line is Roger Taylor, which is yeah, just an Amazon. So great, <laughs> I, yeah. It, from that perspective, like I, I definitely like, take some issue with the idea. I mean, even though he himself acknowledges this idea that he's not hummable, like I, I always have taken issue with that. I, I just don't really think it's true. For sure, there are, for sure, there are some Sondheim songs that are weird and strange. But I think if you name any maybe not any but i think if you name most sondheim shows i can name a song that i think think of as a fairly conventional musical theater melody like he does write beautiful melodies and i think people look past that sometimes but like even passion which i agree probably has the doesn't have many songs where i'm like oh yes but like loving you is a beautiful song it is a like it is it is pleasing to listen to, which I think is the other thing that people sort of argue isn't there. Um, yeah, I think that for sure he was less concerned than other composers with writing the catchy hit, but I don't think that it's absent from his work at all. I think it's definitely there. Well, and I think to talk to, again, Ben I sharing, we were little red and into the woods. And that's the big sort of entryway into Sondheim I have. The song Your Fault is to this day one of the hardest songs I've ever had to learn. So I wonder also if the, because the rhythm, he wasn't afraid to write outside the box for (laughs) musicians and actors and keeping you on your toes if you are the beast that has to take on his pieces because that show, that song alone in Into the Woods is there's overlapping, there's dissonance, there's sometimes you're together, there's sometimes you're not. And like, it was like a boot camp learning that song. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just wonder if that kind of throws, it's not saying like, oh, it's harder, therefore the musicians singing it aren't doing it justice. No, I think it's also like, it's something that is unique to even the performers performing it because they're so used to, oh, here's my verse, verse, chorus, bridge, and we're there. But no, it's it's approaching music from like a different lens. And we've mentioned it today too, like from an actor point of view or from a character point of view first. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, it, like, it's not going to sit how 
where think we think musicals are supposed to yeah. sit because it's not written, I guess, from the same core. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, this is falling yeah. on what we've chatted about today and experienced as well. But I did Into the Woods with like I was in a music department. I was a vocal performance student. Mm-hmm. All of the students in it were music students. They are doing full time music you know, theory and ear training and all of this. And people found that show like almost impossible to learn. It was absolutely one of the hardest things we've ever put together. Like it was, it is such difficult music. Sometimes Sondheim love being, dare I say, a dick. It's not just like not wanting to write melodically. Like there's the great song in Pacific Overtures, which it's a whole other show that it's very much like passion, not a humble show. Like the one song, which is so... Someone in a tree where he won't, where he specifically gave himself the challenge of writing a tonally for as long as possible while like, <laughs> like trying his best to not be melodic. So sometimes, sometimes just loves to like screw with people. Like, like when, when they were doing Merrily and uh, Jason Alexander came to Sondheim because he was going to write this song for the character of the producer. And Sondheim said, Hey, what's your biggest challenge, Jason? Jason went, I can't do accidentals, which is in music where. I know it's supposed to be a flat, but you write it as a sharp or a natural. So sure mm-hmm. enough, Jason gets his big solo. And what's it full of? Accidentals everywhere. Like sometimes Sondheim really just did love to mess with people and really push performers because he went, you know, like not everything's going to be a hummable melody. Life is not a hummable melody. Sometimes things are really dissonant and sucky and are going to grind. Like your fault is all about like the grinding of years, right? It's all about the mixing, not about the nice sound. Mm-hmm. So sometimes Sondheim was purposeful about that. And that's joy right there as performers when somebody really gives you a challenge and says, no, no, you're going to really have fun with this because it's yeah. going to screw with you and make it uh, almost impossible for you to do. But Jason Alexander yeah. said, like, I learned how to do accidental singing because of Sondheim writing me a whole song that was just full of accidentals so sometimes sometimes was purposeful about not being humble sometimes he purposely bucked the melodic convention just to mess with people and and to see what and also test himself to see how far he could go away from the melodic tune and see where he how far he could take an audience so very interesting yeah and you can tell in this documentary six by sondheim which i'm sure will pop down as a viewing option to this uh to this panel (laughs) as well in the snippets of interviews, he's just a person that gets it. Like, he just, like, understands humanity Mm -hmm. in a way, like, let alone not even writing for it. But there's the clip in the documentary of him. It's the Dean, was it Dean Jones saying Bobby in the recording studio section? And he did it. And it sounded great. And it was just, like, Sondheim shooting straight of saying, that's marvelous. See, that sounds marvelous. And do you see that breath and that, that personability like you gave to that moment? That's what I want. That's good. And, but he's like, you know, we're going to do another take and don't not trust yourself. Like you could tell this was a man that just put trust in the people that he was writing for and with too. And that was like the crux of, of all of these, even these interviews. And he was a straight shooter. And it's like, it's weird. It's he never comes off as a place of from a place of arrogance, but like he knows he's a genius. Yes. And like he knows that he gets it. Like yeah. he gets this cut above and he's not totting that around. He's mm-hmm. using that as like a guiding force to like yes. we're saying, like of 
pushing boundaries of form, pushing boundaries of performers, pushing boundaries of storytelling and vulnerability. And I think that's lovely. It's even cracked open more as this discussion has kind of unfolded and takes us into our final question. What aspect of Sondheim's work do you feel will endure with future generations of artists and audiences? And as we can kind of all attest, this is a timeless individual that has created timeless pieces, certainly not going anywhere ever. So yeah, what do you think is going to kind of carry on as the generation of theater and life does? Yeah, Mac, how about you catapult us through? Sure. Uh, So I'll be brief on this. I know, hard to believe. But I mean, I think it's really simple. Like what will endure about his work is his mastery of the writing of complex characters. This was a gift a Sondheim, just like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's the same way. They understood, and Julia said it best, he understood humanity on a deep human ingrained level that very few artists, composers ever get to. And I think that's what will make his work the reason why we keep going back to him over and over again over time is because he gave us so many rich like meaty characters he gave us a whole bunch of filet mignons where every Mm -hmm. time you cut into that meat there's juice there's succulents and it'll be different every time somebody new comes at it like patty lapone talked about when she did mrs lovett she goes i saw the angela lansbury performance of mrs lovett and then she goes i read the script because she did the concert version that she did the broadway version and she said, I never saw what Lansbury saw, whereas she was kind of a bit of a ditzy, scatterbrain head. She goes, no, I saw her as this very calculated woman who had a, one directive, which was, I got to get this man that I love. And I'm going to manipulate the situation to whatever it has to be done to get to point B. And it's a totally different read. Same thing with Mama Rose. One of the greatest <laughs> characters of all stage mothers is Mama Rose. And we've gone from Ethel Merman to Tyne Daly to Betty Buckley to Imelda Staunton to Patti LuPone. And there are going to be many more because that character just keeps coming back like all the time. You know, it's one of those great writing characters. And every time an artist is going to come to that, completely different read. Some, some may play more into her monstrous qualities, but others may play more into that mother bear quality mm-hmm. that she has in her, right? That sympathetic quality about the character. And that's what's great. Sontan gave us the juiciest and richest of characters. And that's yeah. going to keep future generations of artists coming back to his, his family. It's because yeah. even directors, directors are going to love coming back to him because they're going to have a different read on, on the show. Why have we had so many different productions of Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods? It's not just because they're the most sellable of Sondheim shows. It's because they're a different view of humanity. Same thing with audiences. Our viewpoints of characters will change over time. The way we looked at couples in the 70s is different from how we're going to look at them in 2022. Right. That's why you can still do company and give a different Mm -hmm. read on it, right? Same thing here. It's one of those beautiful gifts that Sontan gave is the complexity of humanity. It's why we go back to Shakespeare and keep doing Richard III. It's because he is a complex character with a lot of layers to him and that's what Sontan gives. So Mm -hmm. there we go. 
I'm going to go to Emma with the one right now without a cute little furry friend <laughs> or furless I friend. I locked my cat out of the room because he doesn't know how to shut up and he would have been here. <laughs> right. Another time. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to again, like, drift from the question because I think, like, I've touched on and Max just said beautifully, we've all sort of touched on this sort of the way that Sondheim writes complex human experiences so beautifully. But yeah, if I can drift from the question, I think that what what I come back to again and again about Sondheim is, Jill, you sort of touched on this too, like his kind of, his, the kindness that I feel like you can almost read in his work, he has this, you get the sense that he feels for all of his characters, that even you take the sort of villainous, you know, characters like Mama Rose or Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett, these are always, they're always portrayed with empathy or written with empathy that I think is so beautiful. And it really, it was so moving when Sondheim passed to see the ways in which actors and other artists wrote about him and posted about him and talked about him. There were, of course, people were talking about the way his work changed lives and the way his musicals and his writing and his teaching and all that. But so many people instead just had personal stories to tell about little acts of kindness that he had, you know, that they'd experienced with him. I think it was, I want to say it was Josh Henry posted a story about, like, he was doing some community theater production of, it was a community theater production and they were using Sondheim songs. It wasn't even like a Sondheim musical, but they had like done this little Sondheim review and he came to see it and he came backstage to say hi to them and he was crying and he just said like, wow, you guys understood my work so beautifully. And Josh Henry talking about like, I was doing community theater, like we didn't expect this, but he came in and he treated us like artists, like real people who were understanding his work and bringing something to it and how moving it was so yeah I just come back to that again and again that everyone talks about Sondheim not just as a genius but as a genuinely good person who yeah. we talked a lot about teaching too who cared about he cared about the genre he cared about the theater and he cared about artists and how to continue the work that he started by sharing his love for it and teaching and making it accessible to people that, yeah, I think that is a huge part of why his work and his legacy will continue. Yeah, well said, like beautifully <laughs> said. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, I'll just, I guess, try to be really brief. I don't believe in anything as like transcendental as like the human condition, but I think, you know, even with my like, distrust or suspicion of like such a concept i think i know that like you know humans are we are like interesting because we desperately need one another and that need leads to us constantly being hurt and then and that's like kind of the central tension of our lives this thing that we like need for our thriving is also the source of so much of our pain. and i think sondheim like more than any other musical theater composer really like puts the spotlight on that and says our ordinary lives are worthy of like artistic interrogation and so like as long as people are living our own ordinary lives like i think sondheim will will be compelling because you don't need to like have this epic even things that we might think of as an epic like that you did, like sweeney todd or like 
Into the Woods are actually about people's ordinary and the complex ways that like relation creates all of these frictions. And I think that's like incredible and that will carry through time. And like I really do believe that song time like we we got to live in the time of the Shakespeare and that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think a lot like Sunday to me is in so many ways the perfect show and it strikes me that it ends both acts end with the same lyrics. People strolling through the trees in a small suburban park on an island in the river on an ordinary Sunday. And like his attention to the ordinary, like the quotidian, I think is so important. Like and really redirected what we could tell stories about and what did what we imagine deserves to be told as a story. So Yeah. Wow, way to crack that open. What was it? Mm. You just said the comment of it's what we're thriving, like we're our main sort of one of our main goals on this earth is to be in community like with others, but then it leads, it's because of that, it also leads to the what gives us the most pain. I think mm-hmm. that it that just, oh my gosh, like cracked open so much. And it's so true. Yeah. And that's just like a pillar of humanity that I think has been since we were here and will continue until we disappear, which Touchwood will hopefully not be anytime soon, but who knows? Pivoting to Nick, which I didn't plan this, but you, I think, opened us up with the answer of our oh, first wow. question and you're going to close <laughs> this out. Oh, wow. The pressure is on. Well, no, I think, I mean, the hardest part about answering this question is that we know for sure that there's no more new shows, right? Mm-hmm. There's no new stuff. There's no new projects. It's what we know. It's what we have. It's what we studied. So what he left us, we already have. And he did leave us with an understanding of character, an understanding of lyric, an understanding of relationship. He taught us how music really was just another aspect of our storytelling. You know, he really made sure that our the music was just a part of the breathing of the story. He taught us that that you don't have to be a sassafras singer to to tell a story that can last, you know, the test of time. He showed us how broken people can also lead a show. You know, he taught us that you don't have to be an ingenue or a prince to be a star. He gave us the ability to grieve and still laugh and still find joy through the two hours that we're sitting in a theater. So, I mean, we have so many, hopefully, many years left of incredible artists coming through, teaching us and opening out our eyes and our minds and showing us new ways that musical theater can defy our ideas of what it should be and more mm-hmm. people coming to to destroy the ideas of gender and color and just showing us that there is so much more out there than just what we know. So I think he will he has already left us so much and we will continue to hold on to those lessons, you know, as the next 
Lin-Manuel's come up with his in his shadows, you know, as yeah. the next composers and lyricists and, and storytellers come about. I think anyone who truly does love the art of storytelling will respect sometimes somewhere. They don't yeah. you don't need to, you do not need to be his biggest fan, but you will know that he played a huge part in the life that you are now living. So yeah. I think he is really, like Patrick said, a god to to our musical theater world. You know, he changed us and he gave us so much more than the other ones couldn't give. So mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for those composers who are not out there trying to make the prettiest show or who are out there trying to make the newest bop. You know, I understand how commercial musical theater sells seats. I get that. I do. But I am grateful that there are sometimes out there that even though their livelihood is on selling seats, they still do not care enough about it to give up their artistry and give up their passion and give up the things that they believe matter. And I'm glad that he never stopped because now five of us get to be here yeah, having a two-hour discussion on a man who never once cared what the world had to say, you know, who never once stopped because his tunes weren't hummable or his yep. shows weren't selling out the Gershwin Theater, you know? So, mm-hmm. wow, he's an inspiration. He's a legacy and a pillar. He is the moment. He is the <laughs> moment. Yes, Nick. Yeah. What a perfect <laughs> to this, as you said it. Yeah, two-hour discussion of like passion, talking about what this one person, how they've influenced a facet of all of our lives, and I know a lot of our viewers, listeners' lives, and. The not only in the art sphere, like at humans in general, right? And uh, yeah, like this, I hope this conversation too sparks more conversation. And again, this we learn by example of just keeping him alive in whatever shape or form we can, because he has given us all those points that that Nick kind of summed up for us. So at this point, I just want to say I'm so grateful that we've all had the opportunity to shed beautiful light on this human and this mentor for all of us in some shape or form. And I hope, yeah, like what we said today will influence and inspire others to live by Sondheim's example. So yeah, so I'm going to take this time now to kind of go around and our panelists can share where everyone can kind of keep up with them and the art that they're making or the comments and conversations that they're having. So Nick, if you want to kind of start with you, where can folks follow you? And do you have any projects on the go? Plug whatever you'd like with us, yeah. As far as projects, I wish I could say much right now. I don't have many answers other than our show and potentially a, a time in Stratford, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh, that's it. We have our project coming up in the summer with yep. um, with Autumn, so it's going to be amazing. But yeah, if you want to follow me, the best way will be Instagram, which will be at Nick Mencia. Perfect. And we'll pop that down below so folks can click into that. Emma, where can folks catch up with you? And what do you have on the go if you'd like to share? Yeah, I don't have much to share either in terms of upcoming projects. And I don't really have any professional artistic accounts, but I, if you want to follow my 
everyday life in which I spend way too much money on theater tickets, you can follow me on Instagram at Emma Lorick. Amazing. Sounds good. I'll pop that below as well. Patrick, where can folks follow you? And do you have anything upcoming? The floor is yours. Yeah, you can follow me at Postmodern Pat on Instagram and also at Patrick Michael T on Twitter. Or you can follow the theater company that I'm a co-founder for Afterlife Theater on both Twitter or Instagram. And we have a couple things coming up, but I can't say. So, uh, <laughs> Gotta follow to figure yeah, it out. But you need to follow. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, and Mackenzie, where can folks catch up with you? Yeah, you can find follow me at Mackenzie Horner on social media platforms. If you want to hear me talk more Sondheim, as I said <laughs> before the downbeat, we have done a number of Sondheim shows on that podcast. So if you want to hear deep dives into Sweeney and Company and Merrily and Into the Woods, just, you know, look up before the downbeat and Sondheim and you'll see that there's been quite a few shows where we've done that. So if you want to hear more Sondheim rants by Mac, that's where to go. <laughs> but other than that, so yeah, just keep, stay tuned. Season five is under some, so, so, some construction. So we'll see when that comes. Ryan has already said he'll be coming on to do some live musical commentaries. Jill has done two already with Little Shop and Cats, which she watched sober. God bless her. But yeah, listen, just, Jason Derulo. I just got to say Jason Derulo. Jason Derulo. <laughs> there we go. Yes. But other than that, yeah, just follow the cup for more Mackenzie antics because I'm always around on the platform. And yeah, other than that, that, we will, I guess, see you later on. Jill, take it away. Sign us yeah, off. yeah. Just to kind of go off of that. Yeah, if you are watching on our YouTube channel, go ahead and like, subscribe, come into the comments mm -hmm. Cup of Hemlock Theater. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, wherever you your podcast, go ahead and give us a like there, comment there. And as always, follow our platforms, Instagram, Facebook, see what's going on. Uh, if you want to follow my artist Instagram account, Jillian.Robinson96, you can also go there too. I feel like I am now being a salesperson, so I'm going to stop <laughs> my little salesy rant and give a big cheers. <laughs> stay healthy, folks. Stay kind, stay inspired, and we'll catch you all the next time. Cheers. Cheers.